Hey again, everybody. Welcome back to Revive School. And we are running into the book of 1 Kings. And this is lesson 59. And um, I want to encourage you with something. I just felt to do that as we get started. It is so easy, I think, to kind of get lost in the rhythm of ancient history. And sometimes I think it's easy just to skim over things and just kind of put um, yeah, I kind of know that. I kind of get that. And I, all these names. And I want to encourage you, don't just, don't just pass over them. Um, as we are in first, uh, first Kings five and six, uh, there's a number of things here. And I, I want to tell you as we get started, um, I think there are perspectives that we can gain from scripture that if we just know the story and we just assume that everything's okay when the story's going on, and I'll explain what I mean in a little bit, I think it's easy just to take a lot of things for granted, and I don't want to do that in these stories. And so as we get started in 1 Kings chapter 5, um, we're, we're going to start with the building of the big Solomon's temple. And um, this is a big deal. But we're going to look at it from a couple different perspectives. And so let's let's get started in it. Verse 1 of chapter 5, it says this, And Hiram, king of Tyre, and just to clarify, uh, some commentators say who this is. Others say, you know, the Hiram that David knew, this is a son and all these kind of things. It just says, Hiram, king of Tyre, who was the king when Solomon was king. Uh, that's the Hiram I'm going with. And uh, he sent his servants unto Solomon. For he had heard that they had anointed him king in the room of or in the place of his father. For Hiram was ever a lover or a good friend of David. And uh, this is something that I think... Um, you know, David had a relationship of dominance in a lot of ways because they, God really moved on his behalf, uh, in the areas of wars and what was there. And yet, uh, I think David also had a sense of kingdom. And so he knew that alliances could be good. And so, uh, there are some of these things that I think now Solomon has learned and come into it. And so in, in the verses to come, it talks a little bit more about this. And so in verse two, it says, and Solomon sent to Hiram saying, you know how my father David could not build a house unto the name of the Lord his God. Now, I think that he's telling him information. I don't know if Hiram knew that or not. In fact, I'm not sure why he would. But I think that it could be read that I'm telling you that David, my father, couldn't build the house. And I want you to know that because of the wars which were about him on every side until the Lord put under him all things under the soles of his feet. Um, go into the next one. But now the Lord my God hath given me rest on every side so that there is neither adversary nor evil occurrent. And behold, I purpose to build a house unto the name of the Lord my God as the Lord spake unto my father, saying, Thy son, whom I will set upon the throne in thy room, he shall build a house unto my name. And we'll stop there for just a little bit because 
I, I want to remind us a little bit because there, there are a couple perspectives here that I want to bring out. Um, and before we go on, I think that sometimes I have accepted some of these stories as just, okay, this is what he does and all these people hear from God and all these kind of things. But in reading in some of, um, in, when, when you're talking, uh, in second Samuel, um, chapter seven, this is where David is the one who is uh, proposing in his own mind, so to speak, that he would build a house for God. And yet, in, in the back of this is, is this passage in 2 Samuel 7, 2, that says, The king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. David is using a natural thinking, which is good. I'm, I'm not saying it's bad, but I'm wondering sometimes if this isn't the way that we think sometimes also. So he's comparing how he gets to live with where the ark of God, which represents the presence of God, where that is. And yet it dwells within curtains, which is actually what God had designed for it to dwell within. And, and, and so if you would, Kevin, let's just walk through these verses to come because I'd like to, uh, just show you, um, a little bit and talk to them about how this works out. In verse six, it says, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, go back to second, the, right where you were in second Samuel chapter seven. Walk down these verses, if you would. And Nathan said to the king, go and do all that is in thy heart for the Lord is with thee. And it came to pass in that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, Go and tell my servant David. So in other words, Nathan even said something. And now in the night, God said, uh, Nathan, check with me. And I'm now I'm going to send you to David to say something else. And I know this is covered already, but it says this. Shalt thou build me a house for me to dwell in? Next verse. Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, but have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. And in all the places wherein I have walked with all the children of Israel, spake I a word with any of the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, Why build ye not me in house for, of cedar? Have I, in other words, is God the one bringing up the idea that somebody ought to be building me a house? After all, you guys have your houses now. Where's my house? And, and now we'll go on to the next. Now, therefore... So shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheepcote, or from the place where the shepherds out in the fields would stay in their watching of the sheep, to be a ruler over my people, over Israel. And I was with thee whithersoever thou went, and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight, and have made thee a great name, like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth." Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them anymore as before time. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee an house." And when thy days shall be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. 
it would appear to me from what God is speaking through Nathan to David that he's saying, is it for my benefit that you are actually doing this or is it that you feel bad for me when I haven't told you that I feel bad? Is there something you're not getting from me that you would have really wanted? Have I not shown you that I'm wanting to make you great so that it would be glorious in my name? And this might be a perspective you're not familiar with, and you might not even agree with it, and it's okay. I'm not worried about that. But the reason I say this is because I believe that it's easy to get personal preferences involved in the plans that we would call godly, and then we would set them up as if that's really the thing, and pretty soon that becomes the normal. And um, and so I'm just looking at some of these things and saying, how does God want to be worshipped? compared to maybe how we want to worship him. And that's a little bit what I see with this this work of the temple. And so I'm just going to open that door in the beginning because I want us to keep looking at all the, the, the things that go into this. And yet in the middle of these two chapters, there's something I want to bring out very strongly. So let's go back to 1 Kings chapter 5 and we'll go on from verse 6 says this, now therefore command that thou, uh, you hew me cedar trees out of Lebanon. And again, Solomon's talking to, uh, the king of Tyre, Hiram, and thy, and my servants shall be with thy servants. And unto thee will I give hire for thy servants according to all that thou shalt appoint. For thou knowest there is not any among us that can skill, that has the skill to hew timber like the Sidonians. In other words, you guys have the best trees, and because you got the best trees, you know how to cut them up better than anybody. And it came to pass when Hiram heard the words of Solomon that he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day, which hath given unto David a wise son over his great people. Now, in, in, in looking at this, Solomon uh, heard from Hiram, but answers right back and says, yes, this is awesome that, that we can do this, but I'm planning to build a house of, for the Lord, and I would like you to be part of it. And yet I also think that there's an economy that God sets up at times, and it looks to me like Solomon is going to give them in return for what he's going to get from them. And so there's an economy. And it also says in verse 12, and the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon. And they too made a league together. What I, what I like about this is that God had created, uh, in, in giving wisdom to Solomon, he had given him, uh, through David, peace all around him, but now he's also going to be a peacekeeper, so to speak, in some of these ways. And in, in this uh, sense of the trees and, and how they're going to come, I do want to show you a little graphic because I, I think it's good for us uh, to see it. The plan is that they're going to cut the trees up in Sidon and Tyre in that region right there. That's where Hiram was the king of Tyre. They will float them down to Joppa. And it was, it, the way it reads, it's Hiram's job to get him to Joppa, but then it's Solomon's job to get him from Joppa into the place where they're going to build the temple. And, and so in this kind of thing, it creates an economy that lasts for a long time because of all the trees that they're going to need and all of the, uh, wheat that they're going to send back and the oil they're going to send back. And, um, I, I just look at some of these things that they're, they're learning now that they have a permanent residence and now they're going to build a permanent place for the house of God. 
So keep all this in mind as we go forward, but I, I'm going to bring out some, some points that I want us to look at. Now, in fact, I'm going to switch right over and go into chapter 6, um, because that's where I want to spend uh, the bulk of the time. And it says in chapter 6, verse 1, it says, And it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel were come out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month Ziph, which is the second month that he began to build the house of the Lord. This is remarkable to me. 480 years later, and now we're getting to the place where we're going to build a temple. And I'm going, was this a long-term dream? I I think it was David. And yet, even in David's heart, you know, you had the story of Uzzah, who was killed by touching the ark, and then uh, they left the ark at Obed-Edom's place, and and then the blessing showed around there, and that's why, um, you know, they started looking and say, well, we need to have the ark over here then. Well, how would we get the ark here, and where would we put it? Well, it needs to have a good place, and so I live in a house that is made of cedar. Why wouldn't we build a temple? If you follow all of that, and I hope you do, It can be logic that moves us at times, and sometimes I wonder if logic is the best way that we make the measurement for the ways of God. And and so I'm just looking at all this, and I'm measuring it out in my own understanding. And and I want to go to the cutaway right now of the uh, temple, and I also want to compare it to the tabernacle just a little bit, just so we can get a relative size. And so what they've got in graphics here, and, and this is something that uh, gives a good cutaway of the temple. And if you could, I, then if you go to the uh, tabernacle one with the um, football field type thing. Okay, so let me explain. This is, let's make that the American football field. And so here is the, in the corner you'll see, that's the approximate size of the tabernacle in, in an American football field, okay? So you realize the size of that one. The, the temple itself is quite a bit larger than that. In fact, it's over twice as large. And, um, so you'll see there the, 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 the approximate, uh, size comparison and that it would take up two thirds of the football field in that one. And so, Man, in our day, we're used to big churches and we're used to big things. When we see some of these cutaways, we have a hard time getting relative size. And so in this one, this is really going to show the ornateness and everything. But just so you get a feel for how this is put out in chapter six, it talks about how he makes each part of this and how he brings the cedars in and builds the wall structure and how he then uh, covers it and all these kinds of things. And then if you would, I I want you to go into verse seven, if you would, in chapter six. And it says this, and this is really interesting because I think there's some points in this uh, that they just they're, they're just kind of that fascination type thing. It, what what is the significance of it? It says this, and the house when it was in building, it was built of stone, made ready before it was brought to the point to that place, so that there was neither hammer nor axe nor any other tool of iron heard in the house while it was building. Now. If there's anything peculiar about this house, it would be that it was built and moving every piece in into place and it's meant to fit there 
as it was put out there. I cannot imagine how that's even possible and in the, in the preciseness of these things. And so when we look at the measurements of this and some of these things will, will come out later on, I'm sure with other teachers and different ones. But when you see how these things are put together, um, I'm just going to bring a little bit of, of clarity to some of it, how the whole inside was built in cedars and beams made to fit together, but then they were covered so that none of that inside rough architecture was ever seen. And so you'd see the stone on the outside, and then especially in the holy place, it was pure gold on the inside. And, and this is something that is considered so ornate and so beautiful. And yet all the gold in this place that you're going, where does that all come from? And how in the world do you, how do you press that all into place and everything? I, I just look at this in the sense of Solomon's, um, exquisite and lavish, um, way of thinking. And I don't know if he's artistic or not. But the things that are put in here and described here, I just want to read uh, one of the things, and it, it comes down later in the chapter, in verse 23. And in verse 23, it says, And when the uh, oracle, in within the oracle, the oracle being the holy of holy place, okay? Within the oracle, he made two cherubims of olive trees, with each ten cubits high. So here, if you, I don't know if, how much you can see, but there's, Two cherubims put into that. Where were the cherubims before? They were on top of the ark. On top of the ark, which was the mercy seat, and they were uh, roughly five feet or something like that. Each one of these, 21 feet, and what's really crazy about it is they overspread the whole holy of holies in there, what they call the oracle here, in that one wing would touch the outside wall, the inside wing would touch the other wing of the other cherubim, and his other wing would touch the other outside wall. The, the idea being, and this is, this is where I'm, I'm just not sure how this is supposed to be. The mercy seat is the place where God comes and dwells, and I don't know if he's, you know, like this, he's got the ark then under the overshadowing of the other two cherubs in there, and that may well be exactly how it was positioned. But what I love about the simplicity of the tabernacle and then the ornateness here, I know that Solomon was trying to build a place for the glory of God to, to dwell, and God did honor it with his glory. But I also know that sometimes bigger is not always the big deal. And so you look at, if you look at the 21-foot cherubims, and then you look at the 6-foot, you can hardly even see the other cherubims underneath the wings of these. And yet that was the place where God had come and spoken to them over and over and over. And I only reference that because of Second Samuel chapter 7. Uh, Kevin, if you would go back to verse 11 in the same chapter, because we've got the ornateness of the temple. We've got the beauty of what Solomon's trying to do and, and the beauty of what Hiram has uh, sent down in cedars. And now it's all covered so that the cedar really isn't, isn't showing. And, um, and, and so we have all this beauty. And yet here's what God uh, says to Solomon in the middle of building this temple. It says this, And the word of the Lord came to Solomon, saying, Concerning this house which you are building, if you will walk in my statutes and execute my judgments 
and keep all my commandments to walk in them. Then will I perform my word with thee, which I spoke unto thy father David. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. Now, what's interesting to me in this passage is this. I don't think he said, because you have gone to all this extent, because you have made a perfect place for me to dwell, I'm now going to come. I believe that God, and this is something that I tell my congregation, and please understand, I, I know that um, there's lots of voices out there today. I'm just one. But as I read Scripture, and as I understand the character of God, I often say this. It's not so much that I have to ask God to bless me, or that I would hope that He would bless me. Because what I have found is that God actually blesses one thing. God blesses obedience. In fact, when he talked to Abraham, he, he, he said, I know that uh, you will command your children after me. And that's why he chose Abraham. Um, he, he over and over says that he will command his blessing to follow their obedience. And so when I look at what God is after, I wonder sometimes if I want to make him something in my own opinion, in my own preference. I wrote something down here. And um, sometimes I think that, you see, this is the first permanent dwelling for God in the earth. And it was intended for that. The other one was movable. The tabernacle moved around as the cloud lifted or the fire moved and, and whatever. But see, that was all God. He God instructed exactly how to make it. And he moved them wherever he wanted them to go. Now they're in a permanent land. Now they want a permanent place for God. Sometimes permanence can create a sense of ownership. And many times ownership can cause us to take things for granted. And what I see in this, and this is more about what I see today than it is for Solomon's temple. I'm thrilled that there's a Solomon's temple because I believe that there's something in the plans of Israel and for what is yet to come, that if they have a model for a temple that once was, it gives them more promise and hope for the temple that yet shall be. I believe that there is a, um, if, if you would, there's a reference point for them to go back to and say, Solomon built David's temple, so to speak, and it was built right here and it made us a people. And yet there's going to be a time when there will be, as Kyle has said in the previous uh, lesson, that there will be a time when Jesus himself will reign from Jerusalem, from a temple, from a place where there is a building where God dwells in. That's the beautiful part of what this story represents. What's it going to look like? I don't know. I don't think anybody does. Who is going to reference where God would, would, would live? And so in this, please understand, I'm not knocking Solomon. I'm not trying to down this whole thing. But when I look at this, I want to back up and say, God, what did you have in mind when you had all of this put together? Why is it that the wars of David disallowed him from building the temple? Why is it that you almost rebuked him when he wanted to say what he did? And yet you're saying, am I going to build, am I going to live in a house made of stone and, and cedar? I want us to reference a couple New Testament places. And if you would, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 
because I'm looking at who we are today. And uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, I'm sorry, I should have given you the verse too. It says this, Know ye not that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. Who would he be talking to in this passage? Believers, the church. All of us who are born of the Spirit of God. Is that, is that fair? Know ye not that you are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. I'm just trying to, trying to put this out there in a, in a way that um, is, is palatable, and yet I, I, I do want to push us a little bit in our thoughts of what God has always wanted. What is the plan of God? What is the purpose of God in the temple idea and the tabernacle idea? And sometimes I look at this and please understand, I'm not trying to create a new religion and I'm not trying to refute what somebody else says. I just love the idea of thinking outside of the traditional box that we constantly put our worship in. And I wonder sometimes if we don't better represent a tabernacle because we move about and yet what is in us? The spirit of God. And the Spirit of God can move us and can direct us and cause us to stop here and yet to move there. And yet he would call us the temple of God because it is a place where God lives in and abides by his Spirit. And so I I just look at the design that God has for the tabernacle and then here's Solomon's temple designed in a sense after um, the the tabernacle itself. I would like us to go to Acts chapter 7, if we could, uh, for a little bit. Acts chapter 7, verse 44. And here's another um, passage that talks about, and in Acts chapter 7, this is actually part of a, a sermon, so to speak. Um, and it says, our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness. That's the tabernacle. The tabernacle of witness, actually the Ark of the Covenant was first, uh, it was it was called the, the Ark of Witness in some places because inside was Aaron's rod, uh, a, a, a pot of manna, and the Ten Commandments, which witnessed the provision, power, and plan of God. Uh, that was in the fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he had appointed speaking unto Moses that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen. And that means when he was on the mountain, which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles whom God drove out before the face of our fathers unto the days of David who found favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him an house. Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What house will you build me, saith the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? I wonder sometimes if I try to fashion something for this God who actually made everything that I could ever use to make him something. In other words, if I use stones, he created them. If I use cedars of Lebanon, he created them. If, if I put things together with gold, he put it in there. We're just discovering the things that God made, and yet should God be satisfied 
that he is being put into this place. And we call it putting God in a box in some ways. Please understand me. I love the passages and I don't have any problem with Solomon's temple. But I look at the fashion of it and I look in my own life and I say, God, help me not to try to make something that contains you and constrains you. Help me to make something that worships you and satisfies you. And when I can do that, when I know that I have done that, it will be for the right reason and the right performance of what God wants. And so as we close this out, I'm trusting that you can hear my heart in this. And I I, I just love to look at all of these aspects because I know me and I don't think I'm much different than the humans that lived uh, a couple thousand years ago. And so maybe you can put this in context in your own mind. God bless you and we'll see you again tomorrow. 